Welcome to the Christian History Podcast, Chapter 6, Episode 20. Last week, I wrapped up the history of the Iron Age. In actuality, the history of the preceding three ages, copper, bronze, and iron. All of this covered at this point in the podcast due to Moses referencing both copper and iron in his speech to the Israelites found in Deuteronomy 8. And while covering the transition from the Bronze to the Iron Age, I touched on what's known as the Bronze Age Collapse. And embedded in this was a mysterious group I've mentioned many times so far, the Sea Peoples, the subject of this week's episode. And with that, let's get started. Before starting in earnest, I need to get one huge caveat out of the way, and that's that nothing is known for certain about the Sea Peoples, and most is either pure theory or theory supported by scant evidence. I'll do my best to make it clear which is what throughout the narrative. The Sea People were thought to be a seafaring alliance that attacked city-states and empires throughout the eastern Mediterranean just before and during the Late Bronze Age Collapse. This places them in the region between about 1300 and 900 BC. To level set this date, the Exodus is thought to have occurred sometime between 1446 and 1260 BC, all depending on who you ask. This would have placed the Israelites crossing the Jordan into Canaan about 40 years later. By this timeline, they were either wandering or just settling in Canaan when the Sea Peoples arrived. But do note that the proposed dates of the Sea Peoples' arrival is extremely fluid. The concept of this mysterious group is rather new. Originating in the 19th century AD, the phrase was coined by French Egyptologist and curator of the Louvre, Emmanuel de Roge, as Peoples of the Sea. He based the seafaring description from carved relief images dating to the 8th year of the reign of Pharaoh Ramses III. The hieroglyphic text tells of Ramses III fighting against, defeating, and taking prisoner people named Sheridan and Teresh. From this, along with other inscribed hieroglyphs, de Rouge wrote of battles between the invading force and the earlier pharaohs Ramses II and Merneptah. More on Ramses II and III, along with Merenepta, in a few minutes. As DeRoge's career developed, he continued to write on the subject, and it was expanded on by his successor, Gaston Mespero, who made the work available to a wider audience, more specifically, the general population. Throughout the early 20th century, others in the field of Egyptology continued to push the theory of an invading sea people as being what was actually recorded on these inscriptions. Though do note that as of late, meaning in the last 30 or so years, this interpretation has fallen out of favor with a minority of researchers. One other note, the most common reference to the Pharaoh of Exodus is Ramses II, whose reign ended about 27 years before number three took the throne. Now let's suppose that all of that is true. This would mean the Sea Peoples invaded Egypt after the Exodus and before the 40 years of wandering ended. Seems it was a busy time in the history of the region. 
The understanding of the Sea Peoples was brought about by a greater understanding of the history of the other groups in the region, primarily the Egyptians, along with the ability to translate their hieroglyphs as allowed by the Rosetta Stone. They are thought to have originated from places as widely spaced as Western Asia Minor, what is today Turkey, the Aegean, so Greece, various larger islands in the Mediterranean, and even southern Europe. Do note that all of these are to the north and mostly west of the Middle East and Egypt. When they arrived, they invaded, meaning militarily fought the residents of Anatolia, Syria, Phoenicia, Canaan, Cyprus, and of course Egypt. All of this occurring in the latter portion of the Bronze Age. I've touched on what may have led to this migration, including climatic events like droughts, along with other natural phenomenon, such as volcanoes and earthquakes. There are also other, lesser accepted theories, such as scattered soldiers who banded together to become pirates and raiders, along with more organized raiding parties from any of the regions I listed. Not to forget, they could have simply been refugees fleeing something, maybe even raiders from another region who took over their homelands. There are several different Egyptian sources that reference these Sea Peoples, and it's these that serve as the basis for most of our understanding of them. Now, to be clear, that's not to say they didn't have a bearing or influence on any of the other cities, nations, and empires. Instead, it may simply be a relic of how well the Egyptians recorded their own history, at least from the perspective and the parts and spin that suited the ruler de jour. First, there is a carved relief dating to the reign of Ramses II of the 19th dynasty. The relief depicts Shashu spies being beaten by Egyptians. The Shashu were Semitic-speaking cattle nomads who lived in southern Canaan from the Late Bronze Age to the Early Iron Age. This was during the Third Intermediate Period of Egypt. Other potential records of Sea Peoples date to two campaigns of Ramses II the first during his second year of reign, with a major battle against the Hittites. Another shows the Egyptians engaging the Hittites again, this time at the Battle of Kadesh in his fifth year. All of this likely in the early 13th century BC. I covered both of these well earlier in the podcast when recounting Egyptian history. These aren't the battles with the Sea Peoples, and are instead other well-known, well-documented military engagements. They do show the potential might and reach of the Egyptian empire during his reign, though. In his second year, so at the time he was fighting the Hittites, there was an attack by the Sheridan. The records indicate it occurred on the Nile Delta and was repelled, then defeated by Ramses' forces. Also in the conflict, the Egyptian forces managed to capture some of what they termed pirates, people of the sea. This was recorded on a stele uncovered at Tanis. The actual translation of the stele is, The unruly Sheridan, whom no one had ever known how to combat, they came boldly sailing in their warships from the midst of the sea, none being able to withstand them. Some researchers theorize that since most of the forces were not killed or captured, they remained a threat to the coastal portions of Egyptian territory along with the rest of the region. As for the captured prisoners, 
they were conscripted into the Egyptian army and sent to fight the Hittites. They would later serve in the forces that fought at Kadesh. A different stele, one known as the Answan stele, speaks of the Pharaoh defeating a number of peoples, including those from the Great Green. The Great Green was the Egyptian name for the Mediterranean. These may be different battles or a singular conflict between the Egyptians and the Sea Peoples. Ramses ordered his scribes to write an official description of what happened when they fought the Hittites. What was recorded has become known as the Bulletin because it was widely published by inscription on stone. Published in an ancient sense, certainly not in our modern usage of the word. Ten copies of this bulletin have been uncovered, mostly at various temples. They all contain relief images of the fighting. A separate poem describing the fight has also been discovered. And it's this poem that's why I'm mentioning the Battle of Kadesh again. The poem recounts that the previously captured Sheridan were not only fighting for the Pharaoh, but were so involved in the battle that they formulated the battle plan. It was their idea to divide Egyptian forces into four columns, though it's widely thought, both by the ancient Egyptians and modern researchers, that it was this division of forces that led to the horrific Egyptian defeat at the hands of the Hittites. Though this may be a case of scapegoating, and not in the sense as it's found in the Pentateuch, but instead as attempting to place the blame at the feet of the Sea Peoples, to be clear, there is no evidence of any collaboration between the Hittites and the Sea Peoples, or any sort of malicious intent on their part, but it is suspicious that it was recorded as their idea. You, like the Egyptians, can draw your own conclusions. There are others mentioned in the poem, also thought to be of a seafaring origin that showed up at Kadesh as allies of the Hittites. Among them were some of the sea peoples spoken of in the earlier Egyptian inscriptions. Many of these are thought to have participated in the later 12th century BC migration of people to Canaan. Ramses II was succeeded by Merineptah, who also fought against these invaders from the sea. This pharaoh reigned between 1213 and 1203 BC, helping to provide us with more dating of when the sea peoples showed up at least in ancient Egypt. Stele from his reign called the allied enemies the Nine Bows, as in bows and arrows. They would fight in the western portion of the Nile Delta in his fifth and sixth years on the throne, and apparently the ongoing fighting ravaged the land. Recall that in Genesis 47, Joseph's brothers are presented to the pharaoh as herders and then settled in the Egyptian-controlled land of Goshen, thought to be in the Nile Delta, in this case, the eastern portion. Well, the battles with the Sea Peoples, though in the western portion of the Delta, were so severe that it left the land forsaken as pasture land for cattle. It was left waste from the time of the ancestors, according to an inscription. Also according to three separate inscribed sources, the Egyptians defeated the invading force. One of these refers to a period of peace following the Egyptian victory. In piecing together the separate accounts, a general narrative of how the events unfolded can be constructed. 
the so-called Nimbos were participating in the conflict under the leadership of the king of Libya. About the same time, at least as close to a parallel timeline as their speed of foot or horse hoof communication system allowed. At this time, there was a different conflict raging in Canaan, this one involving the people of Gaza, Ashkelon, and the Yenuam. Add to the mix the neighboring Meshwish, a different Libyan tribal group, and potentially the Hittites, the Syrians, and the Israelites. And you begin to see who may have made up this group known as the Ninebos. So it wasn't just the Sea Peoples, but instead more that the Egyptians were facing several belligerents across a wide area at roughly the same time. To them, it may have seemed like an allied fighting force, but was likely independent groups attempting to take advantage of a perceived Egyptian preoccupation with fighting elsewhere. One of the Steles even records that the invading and fighting forces were northerners coming from all lands, and some arrived in the Nile Delta via ship. These were likely the Sea Peoples. Do note that the reference to the Israelites was the first recording of that group in Egyptian records, at least uncovered so far. And one of these steleaves gives a pretty detailed description of how one of the battles unfolded. I'll start with when Pharaoh Merenepta receives news of the attack. It was apparently either his third year on the throne or the third season of the year as it begins. In the third season, he was told, The wretched, fallen chief of Libya, Meria, son of Dead, has fallen upon the country of Tuinu with his bowmen. I'll spare you the five names given. They brought with them the best of every warrior and every man of war in his country, and he has brought his wife and children, leaders of the camp, and he has received the western boundary in the fields of Peria, I could find no reliable source of where this place was located. Upon hearing the news, the pharaoh was enraged. In their words, like a lion, he assembled his court where he gave a rousing speech. After the speech, he has a dream. Too bad Joseph and his interpretation skills were many years in the rearview mirror. In his dream, the Egyptian deity Ptah, their deity of craftsmen and architects, hands him a sword and tells him to take it and banish his fearful heart. When his troops advanced to the enemy, he was told that Amun, their chief deity, was with them, serving as a shield for their archers and assured their victory. The battle lasted about six hours, with the allied nine bows being defeated to the point that they threw down their weapons, abandoned their supplies and families, and ran for their lives. At least some of them did. The Egyptian record also records that 6,000 of the enemy were killed and another 9,000 taken prisoner. Then it got a little gruesome, to the point that if I quote it exactly, I will certainly lose my iTunes clean rating. So I'll just say that to be certain of the numbers, the victors removed some of the dead's body parts. And the record seems to indicate that they were not Greek potentially ruling out the Aegean theory of the origin of the Sea Peoples, assuming that's who they were fighting. Want to know more details? You'll have to research that on your own. The next stop, at least from a timeline perspective, about the Sea People was during the reign of Ramses III, 
and from the eighth year of his reign. He was of the 20th dynasty and ruled in the first part of the 12th century BC. On his mortuary temple is a depiction of a chariot accompanied by the text describing a battle. And like Marineptus' text, it's rather descriptive, though the style of the narrative does cause some question of its credibility. I'll let you judge for yourself. I am paraphrasing a bit, but such is the plight of trying to make sense of an ancient language in our modern English. Anyway, it reads, Now the northern countries, which were in their isles, were quivering in their bodies. They penetrated the channels of the Nile mouths, meaning into the delta, since the Nile empties into the sea in many locations. Their nostrils have ceased to function, and their desire to breathe is gone. His majesty is gone forth like a whirlwind against them, fighting on the battlefield like a runner. The dread of him and the terror of him have entered their bodies. They are capsized and overwhelmed in their places. Their hearts are taken away. Their soul is flown away. Their weapons are scattered in the sea. His arrow pierces him whom he has wished among them, while the fugitive is become one fallen into the water. His majesty is like an enraged lion, attacking his assailant with his palms, plundering on his right hand, and powerful on his left, like Set destroying the serpent, evil of character. Remember, Set was their deity of deserts, storms, envy, disorder, violence, and foreigners. It is Moonray, their king of deities, who has overthrown for him the lands and has crushed for him every land under his feet king of Upper and Lower Egypt, lord of the two lands." End quote. It's thought this invading force was the Sea Peoples. There's a similar inscription on a different temple that records much of the same narrative, though there are a few immaterial differences. And while it seems the Egyptians defeated the Sea Peoples, or whoever it was, other kingdoms and empires in the region fell to someone around the same time maybe a little later. It would be difficult and imprudent for an invading force to fight many foes at the same time. So, one theory is that after failing to dislodge the Egyptians, the Sea Peoples moved on to the eastern shore of the Mediterranean. Civilizations like the Hittites, the Mycenaean, and the Mitanni kingdoms. And there's evidence of this in another inscription dating to Ramses III, and again thought to be in the eighth year of his reign. The inscription tells of a great movement of people in the eastern Mediterranean, as a result of which the lands were removed and scattered to the fray. No land could stand before their arms, from Hatti, Kode, Carchemish, Arzawa, Alassia on being cut off. And the use of the word arms is interesting. Recall that in one of the episodes on the beginning of the Iron Age, I covered the theory that whoever invaded benefited from the easier-to-produce iron weapons being numerically superior to the bronze weapons used throughout the rest of the lands. And this aligns with what is known from the outside record of what happened to these kingdoms. It also indicates something else. It seems these weren't merely military invasions, but were large-scale migrations of people seemingly arriving by both land and ocean. One of the Egyptian reliefs shows women and children riding in carts drawn by oxen. 
So the invading force brought along their families and their livestock. They were planning on moving in. But what motivated such a painstaking move? Yet another inscription reinforces all of this where it reads, The foreign countries made a conspiracy in their islands. Pausing for a second, the use of the word islands is yet another clue as to their origins. Unpausing. All at once, the lands were removed and scattered in the fray. No land could stand before their arms. Then the same list as before. A camp was set up in Amaru. Amaru was an Amorite kingdom located in what is today Syria and Lebanon. They desolated its people, and its land was like that which has never come into being. They were coming forward toward Egypt, while the flame was prepared before them. Their confederation was, and I'm going to pause here, it was listed as five different places whose names we'll likely never see again, so don't worry about it. Unpausing. They laid their hands upon the land as far as the circuit of the earth, their hearts confident and trusting. Our plans will succeed. Obviously, this can't be taken completely literally, especially given our understanding of just how vast the world truly is. But to the Egyptians, they did seem like a mighty force. And not to forget, this was written after the Egyptians defeated them. So, in order for Ramses to make himself seem like the living deity he wished to be seen as, it would make sense for him to build up the image of the people he eventually defeated. This puffery theory is bolstered by other claims in the same temple, that he defeated the Nubians and the Libyans in year 5, and the Libyans with Asiatics in year 11. All of these are considered to be a bit dubious, as they're not supported by the outside record. Another inscription at his funerary temple recorded that he not only defeated these people in his eighth year, but also in years 5 and 12. They were persistent. It seems that in year 8, the Sea Peoples were allied with the Hittites, or at least what remained of them. Circling back to the fifth year fight, the inscriptions indicate that the invading force came by both land and sea, so the Sea Peoples had divided their force. In the field of military tactics, this is always a risk as concentrated forces tend to be more successful. Apparently the Egyptians had a bit of warning, as they were waiting on the sea force at the Nile mouths, where the Egyptians easily won, at least according to them. The land force was then defeated when they arrived. Egypt was prepared again in year 8, when they had their own fleet of ships waiting on them. The Egyptian fleet was hidden from ocean view in the Nile mouths, with watchmen posted on the coast, awaiting the arrival of an invasion force. When they did arrive, the Egyptian sailing fleet sprung from their hiding spots and ambushed the Sea Peoples. Their ships were overturned, with the enemy sailors being taken ashore, at least according to some sources, literally dragged, then executed. Overall, and once again, the Egyptians were victorious, at least in the naval battle. Apparently, splitting their forces was the Sea People's common strategy, as in the Year 8 invasion, the land force arrived separately, with the battle being fought in Canaan, where the Sea Peoples were similarly defeated. And the record also notes that several chiefs were captured, 
including ones from people identified as land peoples, namely the Hattai, the Amor, and the Shashu. Also identified were so-called Sea Peoples, including Philistines. Interesting. As for the fight in his twelfth year, there's only a single inscription, and it isn't tremendously wordy. Or would that be hieroglyphy? Anyway, it does list that the Egyptians won, and they defeated foes with the same names as before. Maybe a smaller fight. Finally, at least for this episode, there is a papyrus record from Ramses III's reign that tells of a battle between the Egyptians and the Sea Peoples, though this papyrus has proven extremely difficult to date, so it may represent a recounting of one of the other three battles. It implies both a sea and land battle, and may tell of a larger campaign against them, though if true, and if the Egyptians were victorious, it would seem they would have made mention of it on the Ramses funerary temple. The general thinking is that the papyrus is another recounting of the year eight battles. And that's a good stopping point for this week's episode. Join me next week when I'll continue with what is known about the history of the Sea Peoples. You don't want to miss it. Comments and questions can be sent to comments at christianhistorypodcast.com. As always, you can find information about the podcast on the internet at christianhistorypodcast.com. This week, help others to find the podcast by leaving a positive review on iTunes. You can find the Facebook page by searching the phrase Christian History Podcast as three separate words. Once there, be sure to like the page so that it's easier to find later. Finally, if you're enjoying the podcast, subscribe so you get the episodes as soon as they are released and you don't miss out. Thanks for listening, and have a great week.